Welcome to Commune, a global wellness community and online course platform featuring some of the world's greatest teachers. We are on a mission to inspire, heal, pass down wisdom, and bring the world closer together. This is the Commune Podcast, where each week we explore the ideas and practices that help us live this healthy, connected, and purpose-filled life. In addition to our courses on meditation, personal development, and yoga, Commune also offers an array of social impact courses, including Unwinding Prejudice, Redefining Leadership, and Organize a March. If you're interested in enrolling in any of those course offerings for free, please email me at jeffk at onecommune.com. I think we can all benefit from learning and growing in order to better serve our communities. Okay, so my guest on the show today is the Honorable Vaughn Richard Walker. Judge Walker served as a United States District Judge of the U.S. District Court of the Northern District of California from 1989 to 2011. This extremely prominent court hears a plethora of high-profile cases. Perhaps most notably, Walker presided over the original trial in Hollingsworth v. Perry, where he found California's Proposition 8 to be unconstitutional. This decision paved the way for the legalization of gay marriage. His decision was later upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2013. So Judge Walker joins me today to discuss the societal role of the Supreme Court and the nature of the court system. We explore a variety of topics, including the court as a remaining bastion for thoughtful discourse and, of course, the impact of Justice Ginsburg's death and the impending potential appointment of Amy Coney Barrett to the bench. I can think of no better human on the face of the planet to lend insight into this moment vis-a-vis the court. And personally, I found our conversation to be not only a civics lesson, but also a reassurance in the resilience of our democracy. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Vaughn Walker. My name is Jeff Krasno, and welcome to Commune. Welcome, Judge Vaughn Walker, to the Commune Podcast. You're you're the first judge to ever christen the podcast, so I appreciate the opportunity. Well, Jeff, I like to associate with people who are generally not very well acquainted with judges. They tend to be a higher class of people. <laughs> oh, we'll find out. Um, I suppose your career has had many highlights, um, not the least of which that you presided over a a case that that did receive um, quite a bit of attention, which I believe was the Hollingsworth versus Perry case, um, where you overruled Proposition 8 in California, and by doing so, essentially paving the way for the legalization of, of gay marriage. And I will say, and I won't swoon over you too much in this interview, but you wrote what I would consider one of the most articulate decisions I have ever read. Uh, I remember my father sending it to me. Um, So I will just say that society owes you a great debt for your service. So thank you. Thank you for that. Well, that's very nice of you to say. Uh, And I commend you on reading a judicial decision. (laughs) yes it was the most articulate i've ever read and i've only read five (laughs) so i will i will couch it in that but no i i am quite serious it was uh i remember reading it and i went back to it recently and in anticipation of, of this conversation and uh it moves me today the same way it moved me i think in 2010 or 2011 when i when i first read it well, being first on a hit parade of five is <laughs> at least a modest achievement. Yeah. Um, well, so maybe we could just start with the elephant in the room, um, because uh, obviously the news media is completely obsessed, and probably for good reason, 
around the current situation with replacing Justice Ginsburg and the impact that that will have long-term on the court. So I wonder just in a kind of broad swath, if you could kind of unpack a little bit about where we are with this and, you know, the makeup of the court, how that might change and what are some of the implications of that? Let me accept your invitation, Jeff, to approach this with a broad swath. Right. There are three points I would like to make. First, it is certainly true the Supreme Court has an important role in our society. But it sits at the pinnacle of a huge judicial apparatus that is underneath. There are a large number of lower federal courts, as they're called. I was obviously a judge on one of those. And there's a even much larger group of state courts, which uh, are underneath. And the vast bulk of the judicial business of the United States is conducted in those lower courts, primarily the state courts something on the order of 80-85% of judicial cases are in those state courts and a relatively small proportion in the federal courts. And those that actually, those cases that actually get to the Supreme Court are very few. And it's important to remember that whatever the Supreme Court decides in a case of sweeping constitutional significance, does not necessarily set all of those other judicial actors in lockstep in response. Hmm. It's not automatic. It's not uh, something that that, uh, responds definitively and decisively to whatever the Supreme Court decides. Second, there is in the law a certain indeterminacy. Um, One of the discoveries that one makes is a young lawyer starting his or her practice. When a client comes in with a problem or you receive an assignment from a senior lawyer in your office and you think, oh my goodness, there must be lots of cases on that point or lots of authority to decide this issue. And you go to, in my day, the library or today you sit down and do your computer research on one of the legal research services, and you discover, no, there isn't. In fact, very often, there's nothing directly on point. You can find analogies, you can find some similarities, you can find some points to stress and to argue and so forth, but there's a certain uh, indeterminacy with the law. The third point there really are three values uh, that a judicial system uh, serves in society. Stability, predictability, and flexibility. The first two are efforts to ensure that like cases are treated the same way so that there is stability in the system and people are able to predict the outcome of a dispute with a reasonable degree of assurance and therefore uh, shape their conduct accordingly. And yet, law reflects society and commerce and human relations much more than it shapes these things. Hmm. It reflects what's going on in society. And as a consequence, there is, along with stability and predictability, an element of flexibility with regard to the law. And that's particularly true when you're dealing with common law, which is judge-made law, and with sweeping constitutional principles that are articulated in the United States Constitution. 
And of course, it is that which is the grist of the Supreme Court's mill in these high-profile cases that attract so much attention. The takeaway, I think, from that is not to suggest that the Ginsburg replacement will not be an important um, new member of the court and will not be uh, uh, will not lack significance. But life will go on. Uh, commerce will go on. Human relations among Americans will go on. And things are not going to change dramatically, at least not in the short term. So it's true, Justice Ginsburg was a, a preeminent jurist and um, made significant contributions to our law, uh, and she will be missed. But uh, the ship of state will sail on. So, assuming that the president brings his nominee to the Senate um, in short order, which, which seems to be the current path, and I've, I've looked at some of the, I suppose you might refer them uh, to them as the top candidates, but there's a woman named Amy Barrett from, I believe, the Seventh Circuit Court in Chicago. She's 48 years old, younger than I am, darn it. Um, and assuming that there are the votes to confirm her uh, and the resulting, um, I suppose, proportion within the court would be shifted from a, I guess one might say, more kind of even balance, maybe 5-4 you know, between conservative and liberal, with with Justice Roberts seeming to be quite protean in, in a lot of ways and thoughtful, um, but that this will obviously weigh the conservative side um, uh, six to three, also with with Stephen Breyer, who I believe is eighty two, and will be the senior member just in terms of age on the court. Um, you are not overly concerned that uh, that shifting will uh, will exacerbate sort of the the polemic or 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 the um, the social divide that we see kind of reflected in daily politics. Well, you have to differentiate uh, rhetoric from reality. Hmm. Political rhetoric does not necessarily reflect the reality of life on the ground. These terms, liberal and conservative, when applied to anything having to do with the judiciary, um, are shorthand and at least somewhat misleading. Not saying that uh, because of the indeterminacy of the law and the need, therefore, for flexibility and recognition of uh, changes in society that need to be reflected in the law, that the habits of mind of uh, one associates with liberality or conservatism are unimportant. But it really is more a matter of uh, a habit of mind or a habit of approaching problems that makes a difference in coming to judicial decisions. Much more than one's political affiliation, uh, much more than uh, one's view on partisan matters. Um, so uh, don't be too uh, swept away by the characterization of these judges 
along a political spectrum. First of all, most of the cases, even at the Supreme Court of the United States, are cases that involve the most mundane matters that never get anybody's attention. You never get Nina Totenberg or Jeffrey Tubin or any of these other <laughs> Supreme Court commentators excited about some of the uh, Dormant Minerals Act cases that the Supreme Court may have to decide or certain cases involving um, various kinds of uh, statutory interpretations, patent cases, for example, uh, got essentially no attention uh, in the popular media. And yet those cases comprise the bulk of what the Supreme Court does every term. And even more so, of course, that is true in all of the other judicial actors that I mentioned a minute ago. So it wouldn't be a bad idea in thinking about what's going to happen here to step back, take a deep breath, and uh, realize that, uh, yes, there may be some changes, but uh, the sky will not necessarily fall, nor will it rise, depending upon who's on the Supreme Court. It makes a difference, but it's at the margin. Do you think that one of the reasons why you, I, I, I would say, have a very calm or calming attitude about it is because you believe, and there is good reason to believe, that the court still provides a forum for intelligent and thoughtful public discourse in a society uh, that in, in which the that is largely absent and, and when you look at obviously presidential politics or electoral politics i mean all you can really see is the invective uh, people are more kind of polarized th than ever and intelligent public discourse which i would argue is at the core of the sustainability of liberal democracy um, i mean it just is almost has completely eroded at this juncture, you know, Democrats and Republicans, whether they're elected officials or, or civilians, can barely talk to each other. Um, but it seems that the court has always maintained a stature kind of above the fray. And, you know, what gives me some confidence in that is some of the decisions that were rendered this past summer where, for example, on the, I think that's the Title VII case, Neil Gorsuch came across the aisle and I believe wrote the assent in that particular case. Do you feel that, uh, in short, the court still hovers above the political invective? Well, I do, absolutely. And I think it's unfortunate in a way that the Supreme Court does not allow contemporaneous broadcast of its hearings. Mm. because I think that would demonstrate to people that the Supreme Court indeed uh, operates in that fashion. And the judicial system really operates that way. It's, now, it's people by imperfect individuals, uh, as is every other human institution, but the processes lend themselves to calm discourse uh, and also pretty heated arguments at times, but nevertheless pointed uh, arguments over points of principle. To that extent, I think the parliamentary system has an advantage over our system because the prime minister or the opposition leader has to go before the house and to defend his or her position and has some pretty pointed questions directed at uh, him or her, in the same way that an advocate in the Supreme Court can confront pretty pointed questions from the justices, or indeed uh, a lawyer in a, a hard-fought uh, piece of litigation can, uh, can be forced to defend his or her position based upon 
common sense and authority and so forth. Um, these are important values and uh, they do get overlooked under much of the political process. And I think that's uh, unfortunate. But my sense is that the Supreme Court and the courts generally continue to provide that anchor of stability, which is very important in any society. Yes. Well, particularly in a society that seems to be questioning its institutions and its norms. You know, certainly uh, within the context of COVID, there seems to be a microscope on the mainstream media, on um, science, on government uh, in general. And it's easy to feel that our trust in, in these institutions that have provided stability for over 200 years um, is eroding. Um, and, and I'm praying that the court can remain a, a vestige of, of, like I said, intelligent and thoughtful discourse that can continue to provide um, some of that stability. But don't mistake uh, thoughtful discourse for uh, completely calm and dispassionate dialogue. Uh, some of the arguments are pretty heated. And some of the questioning that you have in a judicial proceeding can be pretty uh, pointed and vigorous. I've uh, watched uh, President Trump, and I have thought any number of times, well, wouldn't it be great if he could be put in the witness box and cross-examined with respect to some of the things that he says. A good cross-examiner would have a field day with him, uh, assuming that proceeding were presided over by a judge who kept control of the proceedings. It can get pretty hot and heavy. But the point is one you touched on, Jeff, and that is uh, simply because you're having a calm discourse doesn't mean you're not asking pointed questions. You discover the defects in a society or in any position by pointing out uh, the problems, by asking questions, trying to get reasoned answers to those questions. Um, and that's exactly what happens in a judicial proceeding. It's a question and answer proceeding. Uh, and we don't get in the in much of the political dialogue that we have, uh, pointed questions and answers in which the responder is forced to be pinned down to what he or she says in response. Yes. Well, we may see President Trump in that seat someday. We'll we'll have to wait. Um, but I guess I would probe here just a little bit more before we open the aperture of the conversation a bit, uh, because I, I suppose many in liberal circles are worried, or I might say apoplectic, um, around the incendiary issue of abortion and, and the notion that in a unbalanced court, um, row may be overturned. So I wonder if you could provide any insight into the reality of that and what does that process actually look like? You know, how does the court, uh, I know the court is petitioned to hear, I don't know, tens of thousands of cases. It, it picks a very, very few to hear. And, um, and even if they did come up with a ruling and not follow precedent, uh, I'm not exactly sure what that, that means to the to a woman's ability to have an abortion, depending on what state you know she lives in. So I don't know if you could just shed a little bit of light on on this particular issue, since it does take up a lot of uh, a lot of air. It does take up a lot of oxygen in the. Yeah. about these matters. But it goes back to the first point I made. 
And that is the Supreme Court sits at this pinnacle, but all of the other judicial actors and indeed the political actors underneath or involved with the issue, whatever it happens to be, don't necessarily march off in lockstep in response to a Supreme Court decision. And indeed, you have seen that in the abortion cases. Uh, you had Roe decided sometime in the early 70s, and there have been subsequently any number of decisions which have uh, elucidated what Roe meant, cut it back in some respects, applied it in different circumstances. Uh, and uh, it's, it, isn't a, it isn't a binary uh, matter. Uh, at all. Interestingly enough, I believe I'm correct that uh, Justice Ginsburg uh, raised some question whether uh, it was appropriate for the Supreme Court to decide Roe in the way that it did when it did. That uh, a woman's right to an abortion was marching through of the various state legislatures in the country at that time. And it looked as if uh, in certainly most of the states, abortion was going to be available uh, as a medical procedure to uh, a woman who wished to have one. So that was certainly true in California. Interestingly enough, a piece of legislation signed by Ronald Reagan when he was governor um, and the Supreme Court, however, stepped in uh, and essentially constitutionalized the issue. And that um, kind of intrusion into the political process uh, has had um, serious consequences. That points out the need or the Supreme Court and other courts to exercise some restraint in the uh, decisions that they make. Because at a certain level, that can upset uh, the political process and lead to the kind of uh, almost never ending uh, disputes that we've had over the abortion question in, uh, the, well, I guess, the last 40 years. Yeah, I mean, it will be, I think, interesting to see, given that, um, you know, many evangelicals and religious people in the United States seem to hold their nose and support the president on this one particular, uh, in support of this one particular issue that he will stack the court um to, to overturn Roe. And, you know, it, it, the, the asymmetry, I think, is, is interesting because, as I think you pointed out astutely earlier, that the court can, in some ways, reflect society. And it, but we are in this strange place where, where we may be kind of inching towards sort of the tyranny of the minority. Um, where, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, there hasn't been a president that has won the a Republican president that has won the popular vote with the kind of exception of, I think, George Bush against John Kerry in 2004 in quite some time. Yet, I believe Republicans have nominated 15 of the 19 um, past or, or 15 of the past 19 Supreme Court justices were appointed by Republican presidents. So, in some ways, uh, you know, you may have a court that has different proclivities than w w the pulse of the people, um, but I, but I suppose, you know, that that we what we hope for is that the court can rise above that any kind of political politicization that that might be there. Well, we'll see, um, and if some of the dire predictions about uh, President Trump not accepting the results of an election <laughs> yeah. that he loses uh, 
come to fruition, the Supreme Court, with a new Trump-appointed justice, may have to uh, sort it all out. Yeah. Well, that was actually, you intuited my next question, because I think we're sort of inexorably uh, moving towards that moment, kind of with one eye closed in denial and the other eye sort of open in trepidation <laughs> that uh, come November 3rd, we're, we're not going to have um, any definitive results and the president will in some fashion claim victory and try to control the narrative and, you know, that this may bounce to, to the courts. Um, and that I, I don't believe that, that there is any precedent there. Um, for that, although I suppose Bush Gore, but uh, I wonder how this how this sorts out. We'll see how it sorts out. Could go back to the House of Representatives as it did in what was it the Tilden Hayes race of whatever with eighteen seventy something or other. Um, there are a lot of different scenarios that could be uh, in the in our future. Um, you're correct that there is a, there is an anomaly that uh, people who uh, proclaim to have strong religious and social values um, have tended to coalesce around Donald Trump, who hardly in his personal life reflects what you would associate with uh, conservative social values and behavior. Um, politics does make strange bedfellows. It always has and probably always will. But there is an irony. And um, these issues or these circumstances have opened up uh, a couple of issues. Abortion is one, obviously. Uh, Second Amendment or gun rights is another issue uh, in which you perceive exactly correctly, I think, that the majority of the country uh, feels uh, on one side of that issue, and yet there's a strong vocal minority that feels strongly on the other side of the issue. And uh, that vocal minority has received a pretty uh, welcoming reception in the Supreme Court of the United States. Mm. Uh, but it is just part of the yin and yang, Jeff, that's been going on for 230 years. Um, and after all, remember this, not every decision of the Supreme Court of the United States in its long history has been a wise and prudent one. Uh, they've made some pretty lousy decisions. The Dred Scott decision, the uh, old uh, sleeping car decision in um, Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, I believe it was. The Korematsu decision upholding the incarceration of Japanese Americans during the Second World War. Um, they've issued some real doozies um, that uh, are not uh, the kinds of decisions that we would like to see them make and that obviously have not stood the test of time very well. Yes, I mean, there seems to be a history of self-correction there, though. You took the words out of my mouth, Jeff, exactly. Because of the flexibility of the process, there tends to be a uh, opportunity and chance for correction that in due time has tended to uh, work its way to solve those issues. Yes, the arc of the moral universe is long, <laughs> I suppose. Um, perhaps we could hover off the court for a moment, because I, I would love to get your broader insights around the implications of this election in general. Uh, and, you know, one of the reasons why I'm so interested in the court, <laughs> to be honest, is th that 
I'm hoping that it, it is a protection, a safeguard of democracy. And so I wonder kind of how, how resilient you think democracy is, um, you know, given the penchants of President Trump. President Trump is not the first person who has corroded democratic institutions in this country. There have been others in the past, and there will be others in the future. He has been more graphic in doing so than those that we've been accustomed to. But uh, after all, we had, what was it, basically um, almost 100 years of Jim Crow, uh, 80 or 90 years at least of Jim Crow after the tragedy of the Civil War. And there were a vast number of uh, demagogues who uh, roiled those waters. Uh, we've had, um, before the Second World War, we had uh, uh, people who were actually in positions of some authority and at least respectability who were pretty sympathetic to fascists. Uh, no less than the father of, of a later president, President Kennedy's father, was to say the least uh, soft on Hitler. And Charles A. Lindbergh, great uh, hero in many respects, was pretty sympathetic to the fascists. Uh, he didn't occupy the presidency and neither did Joseph Kennedy, but they were important figures in their day. And uh, we had, of course, the McCarthy era in the 1950s. And we've had others that have uh, been at the margins of political dialogue for some time. It is disturbing, however, that someone as unschooled in our history and traditions as Donald Trump is, has acceded to the presidency. Uh, and I do think that reflects a shortcoming in our political system and the way that we go about selecting a president. Hmm. Um, I rather pine for the days when we had contested political conventions uh, as the means by which the presidential nominee of each party was selected. Um, they certainly didn't always select the best man or the best person. It was always the best man in those days, but uh, um, nevertheless, there was a mediation process that occurred in a political convention, which is lacking, I think, in the primary uh, systems that we have today. One advantage we do have, and we still retain to a considerable degree, although it has eroded some, is a two-party system. Now, people are always very critical of the parties. They always say, oh, it's thing, the dialogue is too partisan. And uh, politicians should not act in lockstep to their party. But there is an advantage in a country as big as ours that stretches across the continent with 320 million people, all of many of which are very different backgrounds, different points of view. You have to have a political process that mediates these different points of view, these different backgrounds. And in a two-party system, each party has to represent a broad enough coalition so that a lot of those uh, disputes are sorted out before the final contest. We still have that. Um, and uh, I think that's an important attribute of our system. But I wish we had a more vigorous way of mediating those disputes within each of the parties than the primary election calendar system that we presently have. Right. If 
if the delegates could go to the convention and sort things out rather the way that legislation is sorted out in the Congress of the United States. A lot of compromises, a lot of dialogue, a lot of discussion. And without being too stream of consciousness, uh, Jeff, there's, there's another point to be made in this regard. And it contrasts the judicial system or the judicial process, I should say, with the legislative process. Um, in California, we have, as you know, an initiative process that's very rigorous. You and I can sit down and with enough time and effort, put together a, a piece of legislation to do all manner of things. Um, we don't really have to consult anybody else. We have to get it by the state attorney general, but the state attorney general's authority to modify the provisions is pretty limited. Then, of course, you have to go out and raise the money to get the matter on the ballot and get it before the voters. The point is this. That's a process that has relatively little of the mediation process that I'm talking about. It comes through a legislative process. And in the same way, when you have a Supreme Court of the United States that is making pronouncements on broad social, political, or economic issues, there isn't a lot of mediation among the various points of view that may bear on these questions. And yet that is an essential part of any political process that will be legitimate and will be acceptable. Hmm. And to circle back to where we began this discussion, um, I think a shortcoming of our presidential selection process is we don't have enough of that mediation function. What are your feelings around the utility of the Electoral College at this juncture? Well, I used to think it was a, a reasonable compromise, and it was a compromise uh, between the big states and the little states. Um, and until 2000, we never had a situation in which, except one, in which the winner of the popular vote uh, lost the electoral college. And then we've had two in this century already. And I suppose it's conceivable we could have another. It's an irony without, it, without question that Hillary Clinton did not become president of the United States because she got three million more votes than Donald Trump did. But the distribution of those votes was just uh, skewed enough so that Trump managed to get an Electoral College victory. Um, if that were to happen again, I think it would, it would be a great misfortune. Um, I don't imagine there's much reasonable prospect of changing the Electoral College the small states uh, would resist it, and you have to get two-thirds approval for any constitutional amendment. So I think we're stuck with it, at least in the foreseeable future. Yeah. I, I want to move briefly to social justice. Obviously, we've, we've just had a summer of national reckoning around race, racial equality, social justice. And, you know, you referred earlier in our conversation to a number of cases, Dred Scott, Plessy, um, that had very pejorative, deleterious impacts on the quest for racial justice. And, you know, certainly there's a, a lot of emphasis 
in this moment put on institutional and systemic racism as the modern causes for inequities based on race. And I wonder if you if you see legal impediments to achieving uh, a more fair and equal world, and if you do, what are those legal impediments or, or legal barriers that we're going to need to overcome to to instantiate that world? You know, I don't know that there are legal barriers so much as there are um, problems in the way that society is functioning. Um, let me circle back to something I said earlier. Sure. Um, that the decisions of the Supreme Court, for example, as much reflect society as shape society. Here we are in 2020. Um, basically two generations after the Supreme Court's decision in Brown versus Board of Education, in which it held that racial segregation in public schools was unconstitutional. And yet we're still dealing with these same kinds of issues uh, two generations later. What the Supreme Court decided in that case did not quickly or automatically change uh, educational opportunities for African Americans. Uh, and it still is not. Uh, African Americans, as a general rule, have fewer educational opportunities than others. Uh, that reflects, in part, of course, economic circumstances. It reflects history and um, cultural backgrounds. Um, it's a long, hard road to uh, providing equality in all of the opportunities that society offers to people without regard to uh, ethnicity and history and social background. Uh, that isn't really changed much by judicial decisions. It's more fundamental. Hmm. And so is there systemic racism? And that's, that's kind of a hard term to get your arms around. Uh, yes, certainly uh, individuals are sometimes racist, sometimes racist quite often. Uh, and sometimes they're racist only a little bit. Uh, People are uh, the product of a lot of circumstances in their backgrounds. And they're not always as fair-minded as we would like them to be. But by the same token, you can't look around and see what people do to help one another and not be impressed by how kind and generous and charitable people often are with their fellow citizens and even people who are not their fellow citizens. How much of that is a legal problem and how much of that is a more serious underlying social problem. I think it's pretty clear it's much more of the latter than the former. Hmm. You were appointed by George Bush, is that right? I was appointed, I was nominated by both Ronald nominated. Reagan and uh, George H.W. Bush. Right. I went through a two-year-long confirmation process. <laughs> it was very difficult. And I was opposed by uh, Nancy Pelosi, by uh, the Board of Supervisors of the City and County of San Francisco, uh, by at least one of the local newspapers, and by the local Democratic Party, and so forth. So I had a string of people who were opposed to my nomination. 
I had represented the United States Olympic Committee successfully in trademark infringement litigation against a group that wanted to put on athletic competitions that they wanted to style the Gay Olympics. And my client, the U.S. Olympic Committee, said in contravention of its rights, exclusive rights to the Olympic trademark and trade name. And we won that case. And this eventually was, uh, the decision was upheld by the Supreme Court of the United States. Um, but nonetheless, despite the fact that I thought when I was nominated, I would get into trouble for the cases that I lost as a lawyer, I got into trouble for a case that I won. And, um, and I did, but eventually prevailed. Yeah. And also, uh, I had a notorious client I had a couple of notorious clients, actually. One got no attention at all. The other got a fair amount of attention. One that got attention was the National Rifle Association. This was back in the day in the 80s when uh, it was not quite as politicized an organization as it has subsequently become. But the city and county of San Francisco, under the leadership of then Diane Feinstein, mayor, Diane Feinstein, passed an ordinance prohibiting the private ownership of handguns. And it was clearly in contravention of state law. The National Rifle Association hired me to challenge that enactment, which I did, and again, successfully, and again, got into trouble for a case that I won. Um, so, I couldn't, you know, good deeds do not go unpunished. <laughs> well, I, you know, what, what I'm want to get at here a little bit is that, you know, you've been, uh, <laughs> I suppose, not vilified, but unsupported by Democrats at times. You've been a hero to progressives at times. You've probably uh, angered conservatives with, with some decisions yet were nominated by both Reagan and Bush. And, and I don't want to get kind of nostalgic for the old days uh, too much, but it, it seems like there, what is absent now in our public dialogue is some kind of fair-mindedness and, and decency and that allows for one to be flexible around their opinions or their decisions, you know, where one might fall a little bit to the right on one particular issue or a little bit to the left on one particular issue. But there, there seems to be, um, in the current environment, um, not a lot of leniency for centrism. And I wonder if you agree and and whether or not that, that concerns you. Well, I think it does concern me. You want to, of course, be flexible in your positions, but not in your principles. And on the matters that I discussed a minute ago, um, the irony, of course, I was representing clients. And as a lawyer, you represent your client's position. That may or may not reflect your own position. And as a matter of fact, with respect to the handgun case, I at the time was on the board of an organization called the Lawyers Club of San Francisco, and we enacted a resolution supporting Mayor Feinstein's uh, handgun ordinance. And I got back to the office and learned that I was being hired by the NRA to challenge that ordinance. Well, I had no trouble with that. They, they had a respectable legal position. And, and uh, it was not my position that was on the line. It was, it was their position. And uh, similar sort of situation with respect to the, uh, uh, the uh, USOC. Uh, you, a lawyer doesn't have to agree with the client's position to represent that client. After all, uh, a lot of people would never get representation if they had to have their lawyers endorse their conduct on a personal level or a moral level. Um, you're entitled to a vigorous advocacy of your 
legal rights, and that's what lawyers provide. And I did think it was unfair, uh, or well, I thought it was uh, inappropriate to be uh, accused of being a bad actor simply because I was representing positions that happened to be unpopular in my community. Hmm. Um, people ought to understand there is a bit of uh, separation between a lawyer and the lawyer's client. Do you feel that there is a... Uh, do, I, I suppose, do you have faith in, in the generations coming up behind you? I suppose in so far that um, that it that politics, the court, are attracting the best and brightest to to guide us forward. And uh, I only say this because you know certainly public service has been deep and profound within my own family. But when I consider the possibility of electoral politics anyways, um, that world seems so sullied and the reality of serving uh, seems so unattractive that really I would never consider it. And, and you know, I, I look around and often the best and brightest that I know go into the private sector or they do other things. And uh, I wonder if you have concern around leadership, um, not necessarily attracting the best of what society has to offer. I think that's always been a problem. Um, why would you want to uh, leave your comfortable private life to assume public responsibilities? But there seem to be uh, plenty of people who are willing to do so. Um, in terms of the generation coming along, I do take some comfort in something that the judge I clerked for said to me one day, Judge Kelleher, who was a great influence in my life. Um, he had, he'd been a practicing lawyer in Beverly Hills for many years, represented a lot of people in the motion picture business, and was very active in tennis. Hmm. Uh, he was president of the U.S. Uh, Tennis Association, non-playing captain of the Davis Cup team in the 1960s and so forth. Um, and he said one time when he was deep into his 90s, he said, you know, the trouble with getting older is not the physical limitations that creep up on you. And it's not really losing your friends and your family who you outlive. The trouble with getting older is thinking that the way things used to be is the way that things ought to be. There's a danger, of course, as we get older. You even knew at 48, Jeff, to think that, well, the way things seemed to be when I was younger is the way that they ought to be. But that can't be true doesn't necessarily mean we're getting better. doesn't mean that the world is getting to be a rosier place. But it changes. And usually it changes for reasons. We don't always understand why those, what those reasons are until much later. But if you have some degree of faith in our fellow man, um, you have to proceed on the assumption that reasonable people will begin to sort things out and eventually come to the right decisions. We certainly have come to the right decisions about a lot of things in this country. We still have pretty vigorous and robust uh, institutions. Uh, highly imperfect, of course, but uh, they're functioning. And they're functioning notwithstanding the pandemic that we're presently living through. Um, with a lot of hardship, needless to say. But um, 
we will get through this as we've gotten through other things. So I don't want to just uh, be Mr. Rosie scenario. uh, There is reason to not despair the future. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Vaughn Walker. And as always, please feel free to email me directly at jeffk at onecommune.com with any questions or comments about the show. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you.